episode number 74. Do you know what insulin resistance is? Do you know how sugar and carbs contribute to insulin problems? Are you someone that enjoys sugar and carbs? <laughs> if you can answer that question with a yes, then this episode is for you because almost everyone in some way enjoys sugar and carbs, but has it contribute to a health problem in some way. And that starts with insulin resistance and fat gain. And on this episode, I'm going to dive into exactly what insulin resistance is, how it's caused, how sugar and carbs contribute to the problem, and what you can do about it. Let's get into this episode. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? How the hell are you? Well, I hope, even despite this crazy chaos of the world right now, holy shit, I mean, what is going on? It's out of control, right? <laughs> Especially with this amount of fake news coming from left, right, and center. It's, uh, it's pretty hard to know which way is up right now, and I'm having a lot of those uh, battles myself trying to figure out where the truth lies. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that... I look at all the information. I don't give any particular bias to anyone, let alone Western medicine, <laughs> which is a very useful tool in an arsenal of tools. But uh, yeah, when it's the predominant voice, I always ask questions like right now. Anyway, despite all of that, it is still my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy life that they truly want by December 2020. Oh, and by the way, the Quit Sugar Summit is underway. It's live right now. And guess what? My Quit Sugar Summit interview goes live today. <laughs> it's happening today. So, what a coincidence. Same day as the podcast drops, which is super exciting. I'll drop a little uh, ad in a little later in the episode to tell you a little bit more about it and, you know, what the Quit Sugar Summit's all about. Um, and, you know, it's pretty amazing. I'll give you a little bit now, but I'm part of one of the biggest online health events. I'm so lucky to have been included with the likes of Sarah Wilson, Pete Evans, uh, Dr. Robert Lustig. You know, there's just like it's 50 speakers and I have 12 of their books. Amazing humans, people I very much look up to, people that are super famous in the medicine, disease, nutrition and health space. And today that this podcast comes out, it's day three and my talk comes out today, um, which is cool. And so, if any of that kind of stuff is your vibe and you'll hear the, la the ad a little later on, if that's your vibe, then go to the link in the show notes below and sign up to the summit and bathe yourself in all the free knowledge. <laughs> and I'd love to hear what you think about my talk as well as all of the others. Uh, it's Yeah, it's a really exciting time. And the interesting thing is too, that even if you're listening to this podcast, you know, months after I release it, you'll still be able to go and sign up to the Quit Sugar Summit and learn everything that all of the amazing speakers have to say. So, the link will forever be in the show notes below. <laughs> And in the spirit of the Quit Sugar Summit that's happening this week, we are going to talk about today here on the podcast why sugar and carbs are really just a couple of drunk mofos at your birthday party. 
<laughs> it will also become apparent why intermittent fasting is such an effective strategy for weight loss, gut health, body composition, and well, you know, if you listen to the podcast, all things health that you might want from your body <laughs> come as a result of a successful intermittent fasting, water fasting type approach to health. All right, so we're going to get into this. We're going to jump right on in. You ready? We're going to start with what is called in the nutrition and meta, uh, metabolism and diabetes space, what we like to refer to as the carb and insulin hypothesis. And this is sounds fancy, uh, but it's pretty simple, really. It pretty much means that when you have carbs in your body, your insulin goes up. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. So, the, the theory is that you eat carbs and the, because it's a hypothesis, the theory is that the carbs are fattening. So, you have fattening carbs or, you know, carbs that add to your fat stores, which results in an insulin spike and then that results in obesity. Now, obviously, this is an exceptionally simplified version, but that's in a nutshell what the carbon insulin hypothesis is. So, basically, you have too much glucose and therefore... You have a ton of insulin produced, but it can't do its job properly. It stores the glucose and the energy in the liver. It also stores it in the muscles and it then stores anything else that it can in the fat or creates fat cells. And then it actually leaves some glucose left over because there's too much glucose or your insulin system is dysregulated and can't actually pick up all of the glucose that's in the blood. Now, the interesting thing that comes up here is the calories in, calories out model. Now, I did a... Uh, Episode number 41 is I did an episode on the calories in, calories out problem. Um, and I'll, I'll quick give you an overview right now is the whole problem with the calories in, calories out, uh, well, in many contexts, it's a fallacy, but is that it doesn't account for the dysregulation of your system in any other way. And so, what I mean by that is that a healthy individual that's got no, you know, diseases, doesn't have chronic inflammation, that's not severely injured, that's not severely overweight, the calories in, calories out model works really well because they don't have all of these other things that are, you know, affecting that calories in, calories out equation. Now, even in healthy individuals, calories in, calories out is not a useful model in order to, you know, model your health off of from. But the point is that if you're super healthy, it's a much more accurate model. If you are overweight and you're trying to count calories to reduce body fat and it doesn't seem to be working or, you know, and a lot of it, it's just as well, it's just really unsustainable and hard to do. And not to mention that some studies show up to a 90% inaccuracy for being able to calculate cal calories because, you know, one chicken breast is a different size to the next chicken breast. You know what I mean? Like these things are physically different. Their molecular makeup, their carb to fat to protein ratio in every bit of food ever is, is it varies, right? And it depends on the animal's life. It depends on the plant's life. It depends on the pesticides, you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things lead to a really inaccurate count when it comes to calories. But it's not to say that it's useless and it's not to say that it doesn't have validity because it does. It just, it just doesn't really work for people that have 
that really need it. <laughs> like if you're super fit and you're going for a competition and you know, you're lean and your body's in working order, you'll be calories in, calories out will probably get you over the line. It might even help you win the competition, right? If you if you know it really well. And it takes a very long time, a very long time to get your uh, body in tune with the right amount of calories and you to know what calories do what in your body. Like it takes a long time, not only a long time, but a very long consistent time doing this type of thing. So, the calories in, calories out is comes up here because I bring it up here because when you're talking about the dysregulation of hormones, which comes as a result of the carbon insulin hypothesis, the calories in, calories out model goes out the window because it's just the body's not operating as it should. Now, the other thing to think about in the carbon insulin hypothesis, so the idea is obviously, you know, when we put carbs, sugar and carbs in our body, insulin goes up. Insulin is a fat storage hormone, so it takes the energy into our cells, into our muscle cells, into our liver, and any excess it takes, you know, stores in our fat. And then if we've got too much glucose, aka sugar and carbs, it, it just runs around the blood. And so, we become insulin resistant because our insulin's not storing all of that as it should. It should be able to grab it all. Now, there's two potential things going on here, right? With either the hormone insulin that's released by the beta cells in the pancreas, the problem is either the cells are not releasing enough insulin to do the job or the pancreas is actually running at capacity, full capacity, and we're putting too many sugars and carbs in and therefore, our pancreas and the insulin simply can't keep up with what's going on. Now, that's usually what happens, especially in a Western context, a Western dietary context, actually in most of the world. I always refer to West, the Western world, but the reach of the capitalist Western world has meant that most of the world pretty much has these problems as well as a result. So, furthermore to the insulin hormone, uh, you know, being dysregulated or the pancreas having some issues, not pumping out enough insulin or putting too many sugars and carbs into our body. There's also another hormone, which you'll be familiar with called cortisol. So, cortisol is the stress hormone, okay? So, when you're under the pump or you, you have a fright or, you know, cortisol is one of the hormones in the cocktail of stress hormones that gets put out. Now, remember, stress is a primitive response to a situation. Our brain does not know the difference between thinking a negative thought or having a negative experience. It produces the same biological outcome, which is detrimental to our biology. Necessary sometimes to physically save us from death or, you know, any type of damage or pain. But a lot of the time we self inflict that pain by uh, thinking a thought and playing it out in our head or, you know, overanalyzing it and raising our cortisol and adrenaline and, you know, those hormones then do damage. But in the context of what we're talking about today, cortisol can promote fat storage. So, cortisol pr- uh, drives inflammation. Now, inflammation is not a bad thing. Like, it, it is the underpinning of almost every disease that you can possibly develop or contract right? Inflammation is at the base of that and a westernized diet that's too high in sugar and carbs and predominantly predominantly sugar and carbs that are processed, it, uh, it drives inflammation up, right? So, because our body's responding to foreign organisms. Now, having your inflammation driven up by cortisol can damage your metabolism by creating a perpetual hyperglycemic response, right? To the point that it just, it's like, well, this is our new normal and that's actually really damaging for the body. Usually if we go through that, healthy individuals, you know, 
have a party once a month or whatever, you know, have an outing or whatever it might be. The body responds to that very rapidly because it's so abnormal. But when, uh, when we do it all the time, our, our cells begin to get worn out, therefore damaging our metabolism permanently. Not only that, cortisol inhibits digestion, right? So a, a classic example of this is have you ever been in a car accident or had something really bad happen? And maybe you had lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever not long before and you just had to vomit. Like you just you, or you felt really like vomiting. So that what happens is when you when something negative happens, we get that massive shot of cortisol. Or or even it can be cortisol goes up in a good way when we work out as well. That can facilitate facilitate fat burning because it'll also facilitate uh development of muscle. But you know when that experience happens when you're, you just want your guts just want to evacuate. <laughs> they were just like, right, I had a car crash, got out and vomit. Like that kind of thing happens because when you're scared or when something bad's happening, happening, which your cortisol being elevated tells your brain something bad's happening, the body's like, right, turn off all all situations and systems that we don't need to to not die today. That's literally what happens. Switch on the emergency system and shut down all other systems that are using energy because we need 100% of our attention focused on this danger in front of us. So, the problem is that when we spike cortisol a little less than that, which is most of the time, we don't always want to vomit every time something goes bad because most of us are living at a baseline where a lot of things are going bad. We hate our job. We're in unhappy relationships. We can't level ourselves up. We can't change our bad behavior or our you know, habits, etc., etc. So, we're always got this cortisol being pumped out. And when it's pumped out, it, it, it not only inhibits digestion, and I've given you the more extreme example by you know having been uh, driven to vomit, uh, but it also directs energy into your muscles, which is not a bad thing generally. Uh, but when the insulin is also spiked, it's even greater level of fat storage. Okay, so insulin's already out of control because we're eating too many carbs too often, and then we add cortisol on, which most people have elevated cortisol, and now cortisol resistance is becoming a thing, which is really scary. And so now you've got two guys, two hormones elevated pretty regularly for most people that are now together storing fat, right? It's it's really scary. So, your hormones play a part and this is another reason why the calories in, calories out model becomes really, really complex, let's say, because it just doesn't work like that when things are so dysregulated. Now, the thing in order to make sense of all this in on a more detailed level is to understand nutrient partitioning, which is the way that the body selects foods or fuel rather for storage or oxidation. And that includes protein synthesis or in other terms, divvies everything up and sends it about the place. But the, but in a nutshell, with so many sugars and carbs that develop hyperinsulinemia hyper and keep in mind, if we're talking insulin, we're talking sugar and carbs because protein and fats have such a such a tiny proportion of those foods are carbs. So the thing that spikes puts us into a uh, you know hyperinsulin anemic state is going to be sugar and carbs. It's it's just that simple. The nutrients are partitioned, and it's just it just breaks down super easy to like it's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's literally too many carbs eat like cause this problem. Too many sugars and carbs cause this problem. Refined sugars and carbs are far worse. Anything in a bag, a box or a can will have added sugar to it. You know, it's it's a really basic problem, okay? But 
you're not to blame. That's the important thing to note is that you're not to blame because the last 70 years of diet advice, which came from the Ansel Keys research saying that, which has been totally debunked now in the late fifties, he published a thing called the seven country study. Um, I actually did an episode on this as well. I'm just looking for it. It was one of the big episodes back in the early days. Here it is. Episode 11. Geez, going right back to the start. So, episode 11, which fat is making you fat? So, I talk about the fact that Ansel Keys, who was a researcher, he did publish the seven-country study connecting the fact that dietary fat, particularly saturated fat, caused cardiovascular heart disease and therefore fat should be avoided. That's what his work showed and influenced the next, you know, 70 years of dietary advice. The problem was that the study was actually a 22-country study and he left out all of the data that actually showed that there was no relationship or no association with any of these things. And so, that led to literally the creation of the food pyramid where carbs, processed carbs were the biggest suggestion. It led to the development of six, uh, you know, the, the next evolution was eat six times a day to keep your metabolism up using sugar and carbs. And what happened? What happened in the last 70 years? Everyone got fat, sick and nearly dead. Like literally, I would not have a working business if it wasn't for that bullshit advice, right? The Quit Sugar Summit wouldn't even be relevant if that advice didn't get put out because it addicted a whole planet of people to uh, you know, a food and nut- nutrition source which was not aiding the success of their biology. Now, important note, we're not demonizing carbs, carbs that occur naturally in nature. Uh, you know, we're talking like vegetables primarily uh, are great. Veggies are great, like absolutely. Um, a lot of the fruit that we eat nowadays is—it's important to know that. Yeah, like we, we're usually raised with this idea that fruit's really healthy. You've got to remember, fruit in nature is healthy. Most of the fruit that you buy in the supermarket has been hybridized. So over generations and generations of growing these plants, they've uh, continually focused on how do we grow this plant and make it sweeter in the next crop, sweeter in the next crop. How do we, you know, put these things together and make them sweeter, 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 sweeter? Why? Because we're all addicted to that sugar hit, right? So I'm not saying a fruit is not healthy. I'm just saying that it has been cultivated in a way that it um, isn't as useful as it could be. Let's put it that way. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. 
The link is in the show notes below. <laughs> so what is insulin resistance? So there, this, these problems, obviously, having too many carbs and being, um, you know, having your insulin spike too much produces what is called insulin resistance. So basically, the flow of events is that you should eat food, your body digests it, your blood glucose goes up because your body takes it out of your stomach and then puts it into the bloodstream in, in the form of glucose. Then insulin goes up because it needs to store the glucose, needs to take the glucose out of the blood and put it into your liver or into your muscle cells or into fat cells. And the reason it does that is because you need energy. <laughs> Quite simply, you need energy. So you need to get glucose, the fuel, inside the cell. Now, this might resonate with you, okay? So there are a lot of people that are overweight that eat and then they feel really tired and, you know, the, the carb coma is a thing. But they keep eating because they never feel that food actually gives them energy. Now, what happens is when you have insulin resistance is that a lot of the glucose stays in the blood, right? It stays in the blood. It doesn't, isn't successfully moved into the cells. And the worse it gets, obviously, it becomes type 2 diabetes. But your cells can't get the energy. It's like, it's like driving a truck down a road and having the fuel tank on the back of the truck, but it's not connected to the engine. It's like all the fuel is right there, but the truck won't go anywhere unless you put the fuel or funnel the fuel into the engine, right? And so that's what's happening with a lot of people that are overweight. Now, and I would argue that most people that are anywhere from five to 10 kilos overweight and beyond have some degree of insulin resistance, right? So there's a lot of energy that's floating around like and this is not mystical i mean glucose is the for, is the energy source that's floating around your blood that your your insulin can't successfully take out of the blood and put it into the cell to energize the cell and produce atp which gives you the energy to do stuff and th- and this causes people to perpetually overeat over time because they eat and they're like oh i'm still tired you know that food made me really tired or you know i don't feel any more energy and because we grew up with this kind of bullshit story which is not our parents fault i might add but just this story that putting food in equals energy it, like you know it's like we were treated we were told to treat our bodies as if we were like a coal train that as soon as we shovel a load of coal into the engine, it produces heat and makes the train move faster. We were told that when we were younger. But when it comes to carbs and sugars, often, often carb-heavy meals put us, in, put us to sleep, right? They knock us out. Like, so, we were given the wrong idea about how this works. So, I hope that gave you some understanding if you're somebody that is overweight and you don't actually feel energized by food. Right, you actually you just and you just keep putting more food in because you're like trying to get that energy hit. The issue is not the fuel. It's like on the back of the truck I mentioned before. It's like the tank. It's like you've got three trailers worth of fuel. Like the fuel is there. The problem is your cellular access to that fuel. Right. I hope that makes sense. So basically. In a nutshell, I'm trying. I'm trying to make this. I'm trying to re- repeat. I'll repeat this a few times so that it makes sense. But basically, there is glucose left in the bloodstream after insulin has done its job. That's insulin resistance, and that highlights that it's not done its job correctly, and therefore you're insulin resist- resistant, right? And in other words, the elevation of insulin means the cells do not successfully pick up the glucose in the blood and results in high blood sugar, which is then its own problem as well, having high blood sugar. And insulin might have done its job 
perfectly. It's just that you've eaten too many sugars and carbs. <laughs> so, like insulin might be working to capacity and there actually might not be any issue with your pancreas, your beta cells or the insulin. It's just that you're shoveling too much sugar and carbs into the bloodstream, okay? And so, therefore, it's it's virtually impossible to clear the blood of glucose effectively because there's too much. It's out of balance. And so, why would the body want to clear the blood of the glucose? Because, as I said before, because the glucose is the energy and you need it inside the cells to undergo metabolism to turn it into energy so you don't feel tired, so you can do stuff, so your body works. If your insulin's not doing its job and it's not trans- transporting the glucose into the cell to produce energy, then you're effectively starving your cells to death. But you still have a ton of energy there ready to go. It's like being on the other side of a door. And it's like, all you need to do is open that door. You need to move like a couple of inches inside to the other room and everything will be okay. But the problem is that you've lost the key. And so, you're so close. And on the other side of the door, all the energy keeps building up, building up, building up, building up. But It's not about the volume of energy, it's about the way that the energy gets through the door. So, it's about finding the key, right? I hope this makes sense. Now, there's a bunch of problems that result from high insulin. Most of the modern metabolic diseases are caused by the calamity of these three things, all perpetuated by high-carb frequency diets, which is hyperinsulinemia, free radical damage, which leads to inflammation and insulin resistance. So, what kind of things can we expect from insulin resistance? Now, Insulin resistance can produce a ton of problems. Cardiomyopathies, increase of intra-abdominal uh, fat, that's a pretty obvious one, elevated blood sugars, uh, low HDL, the good cholesterol, uh, quote-unquote good cholesterol. There's a bit of a podcast episode there about the cholesterol fallacy. <laughs> um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, so PCOS is pretty common these days. Sleep apnea, inflammation of the liver, uh, which makes sense because the insulin has a strong relationship with storing energy in the liver. Uh, you know, there's just so many things. Neurological changes, uh, urinary frequency, lightheadedness, bloating, heartburn, constipation, etc., etc., etc. Like it just, it's connected to so many negative outcomes. Now, the secondary problems to that as well, the secondary as a result of high insulin, there's further problems, which is the free radical produced inflammation. So, inflammation, remember, is the crux of most diseases, okay? And the other thing is, and I won't dive into that now, but the other thing is too is AGEs, advanced glycation end products, which are created when sugar molecules react with proteins or fats. Now, these, again, I won't dive into this too much, but they're related to a bunch of different diseases as well. And the whole idea with AGEs is that they're very high in the modern diet due to the treatment of foods, particularly the heat treatment of foods. And when they enter the circulation and bind to the the AGE receptor, known as rage, (laughs) which is ironic because it causes bad things, rage triggers an inflammatory response. Inflammation, like This causes inflammation in our cells and results in cellular dysfunction. And there's another list of things that result from the the AGEs being produced. Allergies, autoimmune disease, neurodegeneration, diabetes, endocrine disorders. The list goes on, gastrointestinal gut problems, etc., etc. Now, I'll dive into those in another day in another podcast all of its own. But the whole idea is that it interferes with the insulin signaling by decreasing insulin secretion. It also uh, results in increased of gut permeability, so which you might know as leaky gut or the proper name for it is intestinal permeability syndrome is how most uh, sort of doctors refer to it. And so, 
there's heaps of problems that come from dysregulating your insulin. And the ones I've just mentioned, the inflammation and the AGEs, they're secondary problems that happened after the first bunch of problems that I mentioned. So it's a bloody rabbit hole. And this is all caused from having too, too many sugars and too many carbs on too regular of a basis. Or too frequently would be a better word. <laughs> and so basically when where things are functioning normally... When the muscles and liver are full, insulin will then promote the creation of new fat cells. So th- that sounds scary, but in a healthy individual, you know, that's not really scary because we do need to store a little bit of fat and most people gain a bit of fat in the winter because that's the body, you know, being protective of, of our heat and our resources because technically when we evolved to live in nature, winter was a time where the food was less. And so, storing fat is not a bad thing. But the problem is, obviously, when we live in this world of abundance, crazy, crazy abundance, well, guess what? It's not a good thing because we just keep creating fat cell after fat cell after fat cell after fat cell. And then next minute, we're 50 kilos overweight. Now, this creation, when the muscles and the liver are full of the glucose stores and the the insulin promotes new fat cells. This process is called hepatic de novo lipogenesis. Super fancy for making new fat cells. (laughs) So, what's the response to this? Okay, what can we do? What can we do? So, pretty much, this doesn't work for everybody, but it will work for most people. And it's what my program is centered around. And it's a low-carb diet, okay? Now, the original low-carb diet was actually a few thousand years ago when we were being normal humans on the earth. That's when our genes evolved to process nutrition, which is why a low-carb diet works so well. That was the original low-carb diet. Um, but in more modern times, it's the Atkins diet is the one that's referred to as the original low-carb diet. Now, why low-carb diets? Well, the problem with sugar and carbs is they don't really give you that feeling of satiation, of being full. Like you feel full, but you find yourself still putting food in. You have just haven't nourished something whether it be an emotion, whether it be receptors and nutrient receptors and stretch receptors in your gut and in your brain or the dysregulation of the communication pathway between you know, the gut-brain connection being dysregulated or broken and that's, that's very common in overweight individuals. That's what happens when we just keep shoveling sugar and carbs in. And so, you get much higher satiety from protein. Protein has a, also has a high thermogenic effect, meaning that when you eat protein, 20 to 30% of the protein you're eating is burned as energy when you eat it, right? So, through the metabolic process. And as I said, like those carbs are just not satiating. Whereas protein, it's very hard to overeat protein because our body just has this natural, instinctual, okay, I'm done kind of response because the nutrient and uh, the nutrient receptor and the stretch receptor in our gut like reaches a point where it's like, okay, we don't need any more of that. The problem is we don't actually have one of those for sugar and carbs. That's not a part of our biology because sugar and carbs when we evolved were so rare, okay? Now, again, this is not saying that sugar and carbs are bad. They are they're great in, in the right way, eating them in the right way at the right frequency. And some people actually do really, really well on a high-carb diet, but it is, is the minority, okay? The other thing is that you don't really crave for fats and proteins. So once you have reconditioned your palate and your diet, uh, you don't really crave those foods. And you, the idea as well, when you move to a diet like that uh, and you're getting your carbs from primarily vegetables only, is that you actually reduce or eliminate kind of the metabolic memory or the flavor, taste bud memory, the flavor memory of the carb and sugar-rich foods. And 
literally your taste buds grow back, which sounds crazy. I know this from my own experience, but I've also had clients that go through my program and, you know, a couple of weeks into the program or, you know, after the program, they might go out for dinner or have a date night and they'll eat a food again, like eat a food that they previously loved that was, you know, not was mood food. It wasn't, um, it wasn't really great for our biology, but, and it will just be sickly sweet to the point that the, the response is just, ugh, this is actually overwhelmingly uncomfortable to, to actually eat and there's no longer enjoyment. So, the idea is that when you move to a low-carb diet, and I don't mean that your carbs should just be less bread and crumpets and cookies. <laughs> I mean, you know, your carbs should come from uh, you know, real foods, whole real foods, is that, yeah, you'll eventually get rid of that memory and you you won't have that craving for fats and proteins, which are what's going to drive your body from, you know, now on or from whenever you start that moving forward. And so, the other thing is too, low-carb diets obviously reduce the insulin spike because there's less carbs. And I've got a small disclaimer here, which is that type 2 diabetes can happen to skinny people as well. Just because you have a capacity to remove the fat from your body doesn't mean that you are, your pancreas is working perfectly and it doesn't mean that you're, you're able to successfully you know, clear the blood of glucose. Like you can, Skinny people can definitely get type 2 diabetes, but obviously it's very much a an overweight person's disease, but it can still happen. Um, the other thing is, oh, as I said, it's kind of more disclaimer really, is that a high-fat diet is not always the best option for everyone. All eggs in one macronutrient basket is not a good idea, right? You shouldn't just be focused on high fat, high fat, high fat all the time because, yeah, there's multiple macronutrients, there's fats, carbs, and proteins, and they're all very valuable. But the point is it can be done and there are some people that have lived on a carnivore diet for, you know, 20 or 30 years, which is a zero-carb diet, uh, and they've put all their, their, you know, eggs in one basket and it works for them. So, it does work for a minority of people, but it's definitely not sustainable. The other thing is too is that... Um, there's a particular gene called the APOE gene and a high-fat diet, specifically we're talking saturated fat, um, which as long as it comes from nature is okay. So, the APOE gene instructs the body on how to create fatty acids to create lipoproteins. So, remember HDL and LDL, the, the transport lipoproteins. And so, there's APOE gene and there's all the way through APOE4. So, this gene, the APOE gene, depending on which version of it you had, have dictates how well your body is going to transport around the fats in your body. So, there is a group of people that don't do very well on these low-carb diets, but it's it's definitely the minority. So, the people with the APO4 gene do worse than everybody else when it comes to metabolizing, digesting fats, high-fat diets. And in addition to that, a little side note, people with the APOE4 gene actually have a 20% increased likelihood of Alzheimer's as well. So, consuming a diet that works with the APOE4 gene in a favorable way is definitely important for those people that have it. And you can actually get a genetic test to figure out which APOE gene you actually have because there's a range of them. And so, I guess, you know, to wrap this up, I hope that it's made sense so far. But the take-home message from this episode, really, is there's three things to take home from this message. And I haven't really talked about intermittent fasting, but I will now. So, the three things to take away from this episode are to reduce your sugar and carb intake, to lower your cortisol... And the last one, which is the intermittent fa- where intermittent fasting works for this problem, is to reduce your frequency of input. 
I was actually with some friends last night and talking about, you know, fat loss and the and intermittent fasting. And if your natural intermittent fasting schedule was at 12-12, like 12 hours fasting, 12 hours feeding, and you did nothing with the food at all and just moved it to 14-10, you would see results, okay? Because you want to reduce the frequency, okay? You want to reduce how many times a day you spike insulin. If you don't, if you don't change the amount of times that you spike insulin... And this is the exact problem. This is the exact problem that has created so many overweight people is the bullshit advice of eat six meals a day to keep your metabolism up. You should actually see that advice if you're not an athlete and you're not super ripped and you're not really, really lean. You should see that as advice as reworded to eat six times a day to keep your insulin up. Because when you hear the sentence framed like that, now it starts to make sense why you might be overweight or why people you that are always eating are overweight. And we justify it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, have you eaten today? Have you eaten yet? Oh, you probably should have some food. Oh, I'm tired. Eat. Like, and it's just wrong. It's just wrong. Keeping your metabolism up, that's not how it works, right? Especially if you're someone that's overweight and especially if you're someone that's developed any degree of insulin resistance, which a lot of people that are overweight Ah, they are insulin resistant to some degree. So, this is why intermittent fasting is such a powerful tool for diabetics, for people that are insulin, insulin resistant, and for people that are wanting to burn body fat. And that's exactly why I work with those people because it's not about calorie restriction. It's not about taking away your favorite food. It's about progressively moving to a window of the day where it's time to eat and a window of the day where it's time to not eat. That's all it is. You call it intermittent eating. <laughs> right? Um, and the whole idea is that it's not about calorie restriction either. We're just changing the foods. Step one is, you know, introduce an intermittent fasting schedule. Step two is that happens kind of simultaneously is to s- slowly change the, each meal from being high carb across to being a low carb meal with really good protein and really good fat sources. Okay. So, I hope this has all made sense. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope that I've, you know, explained uh, the damage that sugar and carbs does, particularly for insulin-resistant people and how we become insulin-resistant and how we become diabetic. And I hope this all makes sense. Um, The reason I'm talking about it again is the Quit Sugar Summit. So, please go down to the link below and you know, sign up for the summit. It's an absolute cracker of uh, a week that we've got going on right now. Um, And if you've enjoyed this episode too, please take a screenshot, share it on your social media profiles, wherever you like to hang out, be sure to tag me. And also, if you'd like to join my free Facebook group, that is also in the show notes below as well. So, do the best you can with managing your sugar and carbs, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.